Yes, good people, it's Francis here from Let's Do Humans podcast. This is just a quick announcement, just to encourage everybody here that's listening to our podcast right now, just to ensure that you subscribe and you follow us on all of the various platforms out there that produce podcasts, that's subscribing to us on YouTube, following us on iTunes and Spotify. I mean, follow us, make sure that you share our content and continue your support, that'll be greatly appreciated. That's Let's Do Humans, L-E-T-S-D-O-H-U-M-A-N-S, Let's Do Humans, one word. Appreciate all of your support. Stay blessed, good people. Florida, Tallahassee. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, nice and hot out there, isn't it? I'm sure it's it's warmer than possibly where you are, but it's like 50 degrees this morning. Oh wow! Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm on the, I'm on the outskirts of London, so I grew up in London, but I'm, I'm currently based in um, Essex, which is just on the borders of London. I'm not sure if you're aware of the counties and the setup of the cities here. Yeah, so I mean, as you know, London is pretty grey. <laughs> all we get, all we get, is rain and grey skies. So it's nothing too exciting over here at all. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sending some sunshine. You see, I got my bright yellow on. Oh, so. nice. yeah, I woke up this morning. I, could, I didn't want to put my heater on just yet, so I still, I'm still in my hoodie and sort of sweatshirt, as you guys will call it. <laughs> but anyway, welcome to Let's Do Humans podcast. Um, is a professor Latanya White, right? Yes. Yes. Oh, fantastic. So uh, is, in terms of professor, what is it that you teach over there? I actually teach at a historically black college. There oh, are over a hundred in the States. Yeah. And I teach at one of the largest by student population, yeah. but recently ranked the number one public HBCU because of our programs, our graduation rates, those kinds of things. Yeah. So I teach, I teach. Yeah. entrepreneurship um, <laughs> thank you so I do the air quotes because yeah. you know entrepreneurship is something that you do right yeah I, I was gonna <laughs> ask you about that as well actually because um me, me and my mentor have an interesting conversation when it comes to entrepreneurship he, he mm-hmm. said there's two types of people there's individuals who are kind of like born to do like you mm-hmm. can put them in any environment and all of a sudden something always seems to happen for them or they always seem to find a way and then there's right. those that you might necessarily need to coach into it or like train them into mm-hmm. like um like into sort of like um finding out who their true self can potentially be and what their potentials and limits can reach so right. yeah this this individual how, how do you find that scope in terms of identifying those individuals it's actually interesting so as a part of my doctoral research i've, I've been looking at um identity construction yeah. um i struggled with some of my students because they did not see themselves as Mm. entrepreneurs. So I really had to get into what helps someone to identify as an entrepreneur and especially um, black entrepreneurs, right? Because here in the States, it's, we don't talk, we don't, we don't um, encourage entrepreneurship, like at least, you know, my grandmother and my mother didn't really have it like on the tip of their tongues to talk about. entrepreneurship so that's changing a little bit but in the research that I've come across there actually there are there's a theory that there are two different types of paths Mm. to entrepreneurship and one of them is opportunity or necessity yeah um so to your mentor's point you know there's that one person that you put them wherever they are and they're gonna find something to build um And then the necessity entrepreneurs on the other spectrum, maybe they're just frustrated with their job or they're they're out of work Mm. and they had to figure out a way to kind of make ends meet and things of that nature. Yeah, most definitely. It's it's an interesting one because I've been looking at it in terms of like the black community in general here in the UK. And I realized that being like second and third, uh, second and first and third generation, um, our parents had a different type of struggle. So they, their focus wasn't necessarily trying to be entrepreneurs, even though if you look at historically, um, the diaspora that traveled from Africa to the UK, they were entrepreneurs to make that move 
but when they come here, they kind of turn into like a survival mode state and they tend to take whatever work they're able to take, whether it be because of their immigration status or their economical status. And so their focus and their teachings when, when passing that knowledge to us tend to be quite different and it varies. So I think it's definitely up to the new generation to make that change happen. So it's a very interesting scope of looking at it. But um, can you give me a bit of background to yourself? What is it that you do like overall? Yeah, so um, I actually, the university that I teach at, uh, Florida a University, I am a product of the, de- the same degree program where I teach. So I teach in the School of Business, and it, it was the only college I applied to. Like, I yeah. would not <laughs> recommend that to anyone. Yeah. Um, but I was very, very, I'm still very much an introvert. Mm. Um, but very sheltered and very shy. But a part of our degree program, we had to complete three internships. Um, and I was in a master, so it was a five-year uh, program. So your first three years were undergraduate, and then your next two years were graduate-level courses, but you had to complete a total of three internships to get the degree. Okay, to get the degree, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So my last internship I was in um, specialized pharmaceutical sales. And I was in upstate New York. I was in um, like Albany to the Finger Lakes region. I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with like that part of the states. But I was out there on my own. Um, I literally, they gave me a computer, a car, an apartment, and a list of doctors. And I had to figure it out. I had to build the relationships. I had to, um, you know, really speak their language. I had to become a healthcare provider because I was a part of that process. And I didn't know, and this was like back in 2000. Yeah. I was working on my master's. So I didn't know that was a form of entrepreneurship, like intra, I-N-T-R-A, entrepreneurship. And it was like this latent, like there was such a delay. There was like a three or four year delay reaction. (laughs) Like, oh, snap. That's pretty. I could could do that. Like I've I've done it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I worked in pharmaceutical sales professionally. For about four years before I started a bartending business. Mm. So I am a mixologist by oh, trade. Yeah. What's the sort of stuff you're whipping up? Uh, actually, I have a, a a virtual cocktail party this afternoon to do. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> to do like some uh, toasted hot chocolate uh, okay. for a client. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's pretty cool. That's pretty amazing. How, how's teaching like been like during this whole pandemic for you? Or how, how is it like over there in um, the part of the States that you're in? Um, so I actually been teaching online since yeah. 2013. Yeah. Adaptation has been a, well, then you've been, it's been quite straightforward adapting for you then. Yeah. Yeah. For me. Right. Mm. But for my colleagues and, and for, for my students, and other classes with teachers, professors who aren't as tech savvy, who, you know, first of all, are flat in person. Like they yeah. have <laughs> yeah. no personality in person. It's it's really hard for for the students to engage in 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 the delivery of the information. Mm. It just you have to be engaging in. Sometimes you just get so caught up and, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. So I know this off the top of my head, but there's this thing called the curse of knowledge, right? That we sometimes bring into the classroom, which is, you know, I know this and subconsciously I'm expecting you to at least have a foundation so I can level you up. Mm. But I have to, you know, there's sometimes you just have to remediate the student. Like you have to get them to where you need them to be to start. And we take that for granted yeah. a lot of the times. Most so. definitely. It's, it's been a tricky period. I think um, there, there's individuals who've been able to adapt fantastically well. And obviously, like yourself, you were already online anyway. So the adaptation process has been fairly smooth. Like even me, for instance, with the podcasting and everything else that I, I do, um, 
it, it was usually face to face. It's usually at home on my couch, recording with people, networking with um, various individuals, whether it be in business, science, because a lot of my topics vary, and they the groups that I kind of engage with vary across the board. And I prefer the human contact. It's just the type of person I am. I prefer being face to face. But when they hit, I quickly had to adapt because one, my audience wanted the product, and two, I had to find a way of delivering it. So I went online, and initially I didn't enjoy going online, but then I found that I found um, another avenue happening which is something I'm experiencing right now with you is talking to people across the board so I'm not just speaking to people within the UK or within London now I'm speaking to people across the world and I'm building networks and friendships across the world I feel like I've got connections everywhere now <laughs> so so there's been a massive silver lining I'm being invited to all sorts of things once everything kind of calms down so sometimes there is that fear of the new and um, mm-hmm. that's something which um, entrepreneurs like really need to pick up on. And my, mm-hmm. my mentor always mentions as well, it's like the fear of the new, don't be afraid of the new, because there's always like new opportunities that are appealing. People are like, oh no, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure about that. So h- how do you navigate that in terms of like finding new opportunities um, in times of like unrest? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question and, and really, really great perspective to, you know, be able to pull out the silver lining. Mm. Um, there is a book, there are actually a couple of books um, that really have situated mm. my perspective on being able to adapt and being responsive. Um, the first one is Blue Ocean Strategy. Okay. And of course, I, I don't have a copy nearby. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna write that down. Every time okay. I'm, I'm a I'm a bookworm, so every time I get recommended, okay. I'm always getting pen and paper. Um, I'll tell you the story behind that. Actually, what's the um, name of the book? A uh, Blue Ocean Strategy. Blue Ocean Strategy. Okay. Yeah, and it's such a great book. It actually profiles a movie theater. I don't know the name of the movie theater, but it profiles a movie theater like chain in the UK. Mm. Um. And so what this this chain was doing, they were really kind of scrubbing the data and looking at who are our consumers and what are what are the characteristics of our consumers. And so they found that um, the majority of the consumers were um, married couples with Mm. kids. Mm. And so what Blue Ocean Strategy does like this concept and I read this book like eight years ago, but I still like embed it into yeah. my teaching practice. But the concept says you don't just look at your competition. You look at your customers. Like what is it that the customer still needs that the marketplace isn't providing for them? Mm-hmm. And in the case of these consumers, you know, that you go into this decision-making factor, like, are they showing the movie that I want? Um, what's the environment? Do I like the space? But for married couples with kids, they also have to consider what do we do with the kids? Mm-hmm. So in this particular case study, the the movie theater um, implemented like on-site babysitting services, right? So (laughs) it's like, I don't even have to think about another movie theater or another chain because they've solved all the problems. You don't need to for babysitter either. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. So that is the blue ocean strategy is finding that gap. And while it might seem like it's outside of the core of your services. If you really look at the fact that entrepreneurs serve customers and not just build products or provide services, then you you are getting to the core of why you're in business, which is to solve problems for your consumer base. Most definitely. Well, all major businesses, um, and and as we can see as well, all major corporations have been problem solving. So Mm -hmm. Amazon, for instance, has taken over the world. And And it's so strange. It's like they were so perfectly situated for mm-hmm. this pandemic, it just made perfectly yeah. sense. They, they, it's, it's, all, it's almost as if they had hindsight. I mean, if you speak to some of the weird conspiracy theories, they would say they had to have involvement in it. But it's like they, their structure and their business just perfectly caters to people's needs now. We, we want things faster. We're, we're more demanding. We're, 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 we pressure like companies mm-hmm. to deliver on a, on a quicker basis now. And now that everyone is just sitting at home just ordering stuff online, hardly, right. hardly any stores are open. I've got, I've got endless amount of empty Amazon boxes here. Stuff that I would have probably never ordered had it not been for the pandemic. So it's like they're Perfectly situated for our current mindset and also our current behavioral patterns, mm-hmm. which is something which is vitally important when you're looking at businesses and you're looking at hindsight. So mm-hmm. now, when I'm whenever I'm working on any new 
projects whenever I'm speaking to anyone in, in regards to like podcasting and stuff like that I don't just look at it for the conversation I'm having now I'm, th- I'm looking at potential business opportunities later on down the line like I don't know when we're next going to cross paths and what idea I might have or what idea you might have that might be reciprocal it might work for our benefit so I always tell people one of the most important things is like networking and and, and building friendships and holding on to those for whatever it may be for the, for the future down the line but um What's the importance to you of having like a, a side hustle? Oh, or would so, you consider what, what like some of your businesses a side hustle? Or do you classify them solely? Because people, what, what I come across, and the reason why I ask this, anytime I speak to entrepreneurs, some people don't like the idea of the word side hustle because they think <laughs> it kind of minimizes what what is that they're doing, and then others just prefer to call them businesses. But I mean, I like the word side hustle because mm-hmm. everyone mm-hmm. tends to have a main thing that they go to, and then the rest on the side that kind of pumps it up, or you're yeah. waiting for one of them to really take you to where you need to go. Yeah. And and we you probably are familiar with the the phrase that, you know, the wealthiest people in the world have at least like what, seven streams of revenue. So I'm not knocking it Um, (laughs) back in maybe 2004. Yeah, early when I first started my bartending business, so sometime around then, I was actually featured in Essence Magazine because they used to have this monthly column called the Side Hustle of the Month. And I had just started my bartending business and I would like devour that column. I was like, I'm going to be in this magazine. And I like stalked the the feature editor <laughs> and this was before like you know all that we have with the internet and everything but I pitched myself and I had an interview and I was featured as the side hustle of the month with my bartending business oh, amazing and so that bartending business really got me into my teaching position because mm. I was bartending a um, housewarming party And the client was really good friends with the interim dean of the business school. Okay. Yeah. And she was the (laughs) dean. Now, remember, this is the same business school that I graduated from. So she was a professor there when I was a student. And I had recently been featured in the local newspaper. And she was like, well, you know, come in and, and let's talk. Let's talk about some opportunities for you to, like, give back to the students, like share your story and those kinds of things. So I was invited to be a guest lecturer. Mm-hmm. And like one of the entrepreneurship classes, like over the summer. And then that fall, I was in a a, a teaching position, like teaching oh, wow. entrepreneurship. Yeah. So the side hustle, right? Like yeah. <laughs> that's, that's how it works. Yeah, most yeah. definitely. And that's why I always appreciate the side hustle. I think it's, yeah. I think it's vitally important, especially at the times that we live in. I mean, mm-hmm. as you know, the, the system is not structured to give you a job right. that kind of caters to all your needs. Even some people survive basic survival needs. So you always need to have that additional. And I think that's why it's really important to teach people how to acquire that additional or those who have it, how to properly harness it and develop it into something um, of extreme importance. So what, what's the what's the key fundamentals when it comes to like a, a side hustle? How do you sort of find your thing? Like, or how would, how would you tell your students to find their thing and, and to develop it? So I, I take this long range view, right? Um, so I, I look at the side hustle really as the, the catalyst, as the gateway to creating the life that you want. Because here in America, you're not going to create wealth, yeah. right? <laughs> working at a structure, yeah. <laughs> Right. Right. And so part of my doctoral research is really looking at the the racial wealth gap in the U.S. and naturally the implications of that globally. And what I found in the research is these entrepreneurial dynasties, you know, your Rothschilds, your Rockefellers and everything like that. So from from that perspective, these families like a business or family doesn't reach dynastic status until the wealth that, you know, you and I as first generation Mm. black wealth creators, until that wealth is structured and packaged and and taught, you know, for lack of a better term, and it's controlled within our individual families for at least three generations. Mm. So I literally 
I'm in the classroom and, you know, my students are like, oh, Miss White, you know, I'm just here for the degree. I'm just here for 16 weeks. Mm-hmm. And I'm really trying to get them to to think through long range. Like you're talented at this. You can make a life for yourself if we harness this. How would how would you want your life to look 20 years from now? And how do we use this side hustle, this talent, this passion to create that life, you know, 20 years from now? So that's the the view, like that's the perspective that I bring into like my coaching and my teaching and everything. But the fundamentals of it, like I, I've, I've kind of boiled it down over the past 11 years to like a seven step process. Yeah. Um, and so that really starts with the foundation of who you are as as an entrepreneur, um, who you are as a first generation black wealth creator and these different facets of your identity, because if you're going to do this, then who you are is going to show up in your brand. Mm. And then that brand promise, like that's what people are paying you for, because you said yeah. like <laughs> now you have to all over your website. <laughs> <laughs> That you can solve this problem for me. So you're making a promise to me as a consumer. And so if you aren't really in touch with who you are, how you're showing up, how you want to be received, then your messages get so mixed up. Mm. And that's really what compromises this, this, the sustainability of an idea of a side hustle because you're just so disconnected or you're so distracted mm. by everything else that's going on that you yeah. aren't in tune with how you want to show up. Yeah. Um, what, one interesting factor that I've noticed nowadays when 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 having a conversation regarding building generational wealth is that everyone's up for having the conversation. Everyone likes mm-hmm. the idea of building generational wealth. But I also find one of the struggles in particular with our generation is um, delayed gratification because, mm-hmm. and, and that's, in, that's in relations to like social media, it's relations to how um, our, in, our various industries, whether it be music, movies, and um, the glamour industry, everything is now, now, now. Mm-hmm. And what we don't, what when you look at history, because I, I love history and I love like evolutionary biology and psychology and all that stuff. When you look at history, it takes a lot to get to a particular point. So yeah. for instance, us two being here, if you look at the brutality of history, there's a lot of blood, there's a lot of bloodshed, there's a lot of death, there's a lot of wars, there's a lot of like sacrifices for us to just be us to now sitting here talking to each other mm-hmm. over here. And in mm-hmm. particular, when you look at the black race, we know all the other additionals that we've been through, um, slavery, oppression, is if it's a lot. So whenever I, I speak to people in regards to like um, generational, I'm sorry, look at it this way you're actually building something that you might not potentially benefit from. And that's like, and that's the, that's the God's honest truth about it. And that's something that is as harsh as it sounds, you're going to have to come to terms with it. That if you really believe in building a generational wealth, you have to look at your kids, your grandkids, your great grandkids. Don't look at yourself sitting in a Bentley right now. That might happen and your mm-hmm. journey might be exponential, but there's a chance that there's going to be a lot of sacrifice and a lot of suffering. Because even when I look at something simple as my parents, Mm-hmm. When they when they came over to Europe, they were doing cleaning jobs before they managed to get the degrees to stem start working in hospitals and doing nursing and and various other jobs and becoming self-employed and becoming property owners. Those are sacrifices that enable me to potentially then live in a better area or go to a better school and save for my siblings and save potentially for my my kids. So, um, d- delayed gratification is a very difficult subject when being brutally honest about and I wanted to know your your perception of it and how you go about like explaining that to your students yeah it's it's um you're you're absolutely right we live in this microwave society mm-hmm. and could you imagine being a generation z student and someone talking <laughs> to you about a 40-year plan like what no. like- I want to be I want to be 20 in a mansion I, I remember being in school, so me and my best friend, we, talk, we always used to talk about this. We were like, oh, we still laugh at each other about this because we just hit our first. <laughs> but when we were in secondary school, we we're like, oh, when we hit 25, like I'm going to get a mansion next to your house and then we're going to have our kids and take them to like football practice every Saturday and, you know, Bentleys and stuff like that. Then we hit 30, we're like, well, okay, fair enough. We do. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like, I'm just about buying my first house and looking at my second one now and it's like oh but i'm still haven't reached the mansion yet no bro like 25 was about five six years ago bro 
But nonetheless, we made progress. Do you know what I mean? Right. A good progress at that. Yeah. Right. Um, I think one of the things that really struck home um, earlier this semester, not this semester, maybe in the spring semester, we're on um, uh, semesters as opposed to quarters or trimesters. Mm. But I was just getting into the data um, about the racial wealth gap. And there is, I want to say, it may not be the Institute of Policy Studies. I have to to send you the the mm. source. I'll definitely but read there it. is um, a there's research that shows that it will take black households in the United States 242 years. Like if we continue on the same spending pattern and you know uh, gaps in income and equality, it will take black households in the United States 242 years to have the same level of wealth that the average white household had in 2013. Wow. And by that time, there'll be years ahead. Exactly. And it was that number that really, like, okay, mm. if if we're talking about a 242-year gap, then I think me saying three generations was a little bit easier for them to mm. digest. But I, you know, I had to paint like this really like drastic, empirically sound, right? Like the data is there, but I had to paint that picture for them to really get them out of this, the, this, the way they make their decision is from semester to semester. (laughs) It's like, if I can start off strong and finish with a passing grade, I'm good. Mm. So I really had to put it in perspective that way. And that's when, because it's not until I can get a client or student to really think about the long-term impact Mm. when we get into like, you got to raise your prices. Otherwise I get pushback and resistance because you aren't going to build anybody's dynasty if you're underpaying yourself. Yeah, most definitely. definitely. And one one of the things that you mentioned there was, that it was due to the, our, our current spending. So mm. if we was to continue this current wave of spending, it's going to take us near enough forever to reach where we want to reach. But how do we change that? Because everyone understands the, the power of the, the black dollar or the black pound, for instance. And we understand where it goes and um, some of the non-beneficial places that it goes in terms of like it be this our expenditure. It's just, it's ridiculous. Yeah. A lot of it goes towards like luxuries. A lot of it goes towards like um, takeaway stores that not necessarily mm-hmm. belong to the community. How, how do we continuously keep like hammering that in and, and getting some action out of the, the the stats that are clearly available to us. Yeah. Um, so I was watching one of the, one of your past podcasts um, mm. where you were talking about family and getting into like collectivism and going yeah. back to the village mentality. One thing that, and I've just been turning this over and over for mm. years, even before I started my research on the racial wealth gap and entrepreneurial dynasties, like there's the percentage of, affluent African-Americans is not enough. Mm. Like there are not enough African-Americans in the U.S. that make money, right? Mm. That can have an impact where the masses are. Like we literally have to go into the under-resourced communities Mm. and we have to talk to those kids. We have to talk to those parents. We have to get teachers Right. That are from those communities, because the teachers that teach in these these underprivileged areas, under resourced areas, they're there because they can get like um, some of their student loans and Mm. stuff can be. So they are they love the kids like they love teaching. But that's not to say that you're committed to this community. Like we need you committed to these streets. Mm. Right. Um, In this neighborhood, in this block and that's what it's going to take. It's going to take like a real grassroots effort to go into those community, into the projects. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and the other part of that is it's going to be hard to do because who the fuck are you mm-hmm. rolling up in here? Me, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's going to take, you know, um, bravery mm-hmm. on the side of those of us, who are willing to go back to like the neighborhoods that our parents Mm. grew up in, but it's also going to take, 
you know, a lot of trust from the people in those communities to say, you know, I really, I really just want us all to do better. And I know like that's going to be a struggle. Like Mm -hmm. I grew up in Miami, um, like I said, very sheltered. Right. But just around the corner from where I live, gunshots all the time you know like they don't want to hear me or see me coming in through there talking about yeah. let's not spend money on a ps <laughs> they go off for issues at hand yeah right yeah. right so it's gonna it's gonna take so people like you know like ti who can really talk to communities that are like in pain like they're they're hurting and so you know hurt people hurt people right so to really be able to hear somebody talking about what your future could look like if you made it just one decision differently it's just going to take a lot of work to yeah. be able to build to build rebuild those bridges yeah most definitely it's, it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take a lot of pain as well cuz I mean, the, the frustrating thing is that when when people are kind of stuck in a row, it continues and everything yeah. you do is, is a generational issue. So, yeah. for instance, you're, you're, those that are like in like on the other side of the neighborhood where there's gunshots and stuff, it's very mm-hmm. difficult to talk to them about generational wealth because they have to survive the day. Exactly. So, and to change someone's mindset when they're in a row is very difficult. Like yeah. I, I remember having a friend who was in like, dire like um financial situation and when whenever i attempted to preach to that person in regards to like business it's like like, yo i'm trying to pay my phone bill next month i'm trying to i'm trying to get this 90 pounds to pay t-mobile when they when they call me next month i don't have time to be thinking about a b and a b and c but sometimes it's like drilling that through to them and saying look okay maybe you have to struggle this month to deal with this, but come along to here is going to be in the long run. And then you don't have to worry about the following month and the following month and the following month's issues because you have to make that sacrifice. But Mm -hmm. it's very difficult because sometimes people are put in a position where, or they're in an environment that they just can't work their way out of. And that's the difficult part. But um, one interesting thing that I wanted to ask in regards to like um, the, um, the generational, uh, mm-hmm. the, the wealth gap between African Americans mm-hmm. and um, and and what is it? Just white Americans, or is it all other Americans in general? What's is there major um, So I think white American households make somewhere around twenty four times as much as black households on average. Yeah. And then 17 times as much as Hispanic and Latinx households. Yeah, because I, I, I mean, it's, it's been something of like extreme interest to me for the last um, couple of months, especially since I've watched a couple of uh, documentaries in regards to like redlining mm-hmm. and um, all the other various issues that's, that's gone on um, during the, um, the civil rights movements in the last couple of years. And you realize that it's not really that long ago. Right. Like, I, I mean, when I used to hear about the wealth gap in, in the States, I thought this was like hundreds of hundreds of years ago but then you realize 60s and 70s was just around the corner like my my parents were born <laughs> during the time when all of these issues were going on so it's a fight that just re- if you look at the scale of history it's, just, it's very recent it's very very recent yeah. so it is a fight that's going to be very hard fought and very long but I think that eventually with these type of discussions and with people's eyes being opening to what the issues are and what the under, main underlining issues are, that we are we are kind of like opening up to going in the wrong right direction, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you is, what, tell me a bit about the, um, the audacity of privilege, which was your oh. speech, uh, the TED Talk, wasn't it? Yeah. What, what's, the, what's the, can you just round off, what's the main concept and idea behind the... Yeah, the thank you. For, for asking. So I was in a faculty meeting mm. um, last year and we were debating about textbooks. And one of the one of my colleagues wanted to keep the same textbook we had been using, but there was a cheaper option mm. that was available. And so my colleague said, well, if you can't afford the textbook, you shouldn't register for my class. Oh, wow. And I like even thinking about it now it's mm. I just get furious mm. because how far how long ago were you 
a college student that you've forgotten. That is not as easy as let me call mom and dad or let me just pull money out the bank for this $200 textbook for one class. And, you know, students are registering for five or six classes. And it was just like the audacity Mm. that you have to use the privilege that you've gained through your Ph.D. You know, you've been your tenure professor and you basically can't be touched. But the audacity you're here to serve these students. And I was so furious. Right. Um, And that version of my TED talk isn't the first version that I wrote, okay. but uh, my friend was like, down a bit. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I kind of realized that. <laughs> yeah. Like, can you see him like still emotional yeah, about yeah. it? Um, but so I have, the, I have the privilege of really being connected to my students at a, from a heart to heart perspective. Mm-hmm. So I talk with my students about, you know, what's going on that you, you didn't perform as well on, on this assignment. And so when you talk with them, they're going through financial hardships. There's so many students that are like homeless, like they're couch surfing. They have food insecurities. They literally don't know when or where their next meal is going to come from. And if you don't have the capacity and the compassion to understand that at a human level, you won't understand why they aren't doing well in your class. And if the students don't perform well in class, you know, then from an evaluation perspective as a professor, it has all of these political repercussions. But I was like, there is no way that you're you're going to assess how well I do as a professor because my student is food insecure. Like I'm more concerned about making sure that they get healthy, nutritious meals because Otherwise, it's a waste of their time and money to try to come to this class and they're just going to fail. And it was that that I really wanted people to look at. While you may not have been born with a silver spoon or maybe you don't have a trust fund, but you do have privilege. Mm -hmm. The fact that someone talked to you about going to college is a privilege that other people don't have. Mm. Um, I have like this personal library and that's a privilege, right? So for my daughter who's six years old, she has a library and, you know, they're all like picture books, but that's a privilege that some of her like classmates who are just learning to read and she's writing a page book, a one page book report every day like even on Christmas break. Um, <laughs> <Work> <laughs> <but that's> a, <laughs> yeah. And so it's, it's, it was, it was, I really wanted to challenge people's perspective or understanding of what privilege is and, mm-hmm. and how it can look, but going beyond that, what can you do with your privilege to create opportunities for other people and specifically just in that context of first-generation college students. Most definitely, yeah. I'm, I'm of the belief that everyone has a privilege um, and, it's, and it's just learning how to harness it and use it properly to your advantage. Um, so this this one is one that I've, I think about all the time is the how do we build a dynasty? So if like... Mm-hmm. Um, like the the black diaspora, the the African Americans. Like, how do we go about building a dynasty? What what's the steps that you think we should take? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so just you know, just to kind of recap and make sure that we understand that dynastic wealth is different from generational wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's different from building a legacy and building an empire, because uh, dynasties actually show up in empirical literature. So it's peer review, right? Which means that if we look at all of the, the constructs or the component parts of what a dynasty is, if we apply these things, it can be replicated to get the same or similar results. Mm-hmm. So a fam a family reaches dynastic status when the first generation uh, wealth creator um, either has passed down the business. So in the case of the the Walton family here in the states, just Walmart, um, or passed down the wealth like the Rockefeller family. Like that family hasn't had a business since 1911. <laughs> yeah. <but they're> <laughs> 
Right. Right. But the way that they not only structure it, like the legal side of it with the trust and all of that, um, most dynastic families actually infuse these other forms of capital. There are four forms of capital. We we know we really only talk about financial capital and that's Mm -hmm. quantitative. But it's these qualitative forms of capital that really get the family in sync with each other about what is this wealth for? What are we, the money that we're creating, the wealth that we're creating, what is it for? And that's um, a form of spiritual capital. So spiritual capital isn't like based in religion. It's really saying that there's something bigger than me when it comes to this family, when it comes to this wealth. So even within my own identity as mom this or, you know, Latanya that, I know that I'm not going to make a decision that's going to compromise the vision that we as a family have established um, and that we perpetuate. Um, So there's one book, Bookworm, right? Uh, (laughs) It's called, the title is Complete Family Wealth. Complete um, yeah. Yeah. So I have a post of it on my Instagram. Oh, okay. But in that book, they talk about like they don't ha- in the states we have family reunions. So your family's all over the country. Oh, yeah. I love watching those on TV. I'm like, oh. We're- <laughs> yeah. yeah. But wealthy families don't have those. Dynastic oh. families have family retreats. Oh yes, yes, yeah. 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 So there, it's like a business meeting, right? We're reviewing the mission, like the executive summary of the family. What is the mission of our family? What's the vision for this wealth? And they'll get all, you know, all of the generations in a, you know, in one space. And typically the oldest person of like the youngest generation. So, you know, maybe nine, 10 or whatever, will read through the family mission statement. So, we're not waiting until you're 30 years old Mm. to inform you about what this wealth is for. Mm. Like they are infused through it. So that's the, the spiritual capital, Mm. Um, another form of capital, qualitative capital for dynastic wealth building is human capital. And that's acknowledging that everyone has like some form of valuable knowledge or experience that we can use to build businesses, create wealth and control wealth. Mm. So generational wealth really kind of looks at like from me down, like my lineage down. But dynastic wealth is it has a different directionality. So it's it's me and my daughter, but it's me and my mom and my grandmother Mm. it's me and my siblings and my cousins so it's not just you know the wealth creator down it's in all directions and that's human capital that's really talking with everyone about what's their skill set what's your knowledge what's your expertise and how do we infuse that and incorporate that into this vision for wealth that we've already established as a family wow that's amazing yeah um, yeah, <laughs> we got a lot of work to do. <laughs> we, we got a lot of work to do. I felt the weight of like my ancestors on my shoulder right now after that. Yeah. After that. But um, one thing I realized about everything you said is that the, the structure of like building that dynasty is very purposeful. It seems very, very purposeful and the whole structure, the whole setup. So for instance, I, I was born in Ghana and um, <laughs> in, in Ghana, there's, um, well, in the, in the tribe that I'm from, they love mm. this idea of a will. Um, we call it Japadir. And um, when I look at, I'm always, I'm always laughing. At, um, whenever my mom talks about it, whenever my siblings or family members, elders talk about, it, I'm always laughing at the idea of it because in order to get this will, you need to wait for a particular person to die. Yeah. And <laughs> and it's like, yeah. and and the thing is, it's never talked about. So you never know what yeah. you're going to be left with. You never know what's 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 in this um, will or this treasure. Mm-hmm as it would be better interpreted, that this person's going to leave you with. So mm-hmm. you might wait, I don't know, till the person turns 90 or, or whatever, they, mm-hmm. they pass away and then find out that you got about 300 cloths or mm-hmm. whatever. Or you might have a land somewhere which is now like being disputed by 500 other relatives. And I find it ridiculous because, and people don't understand why I'm always like poking fun at them, especially mm-hmm. family members when they talk about this particular will stuff. And because I'm saying it's a waste of time us having to wait 
till then to receive it. Mm-hmm. Because by that time, it, it might not, my knowledge base might not be able to help us develop it into anything else. If we truly have something there valuable, let's work on it together. Let's say I have this bit of land here in this town. I have this bit of land here. And if we manage it well, we yeah. would all be fantastically well off. So my great grandfather, he was, he had a massive pineapple um, plantation mm-hmm. in, um, in Kumasi many, many years ago. And apparently this guy had so much money, it was in like truckloads. Like he, he, had, he had to bring truckloads into the village for people to count his money. But I've, I've never seen his money. His money disappeared. So, and he kept it to himself, never spoke to anyone in his family about it. The only time they saw it was when he was coming around and everyone knew that he owned this wonderful plantation and um, these wonderful farms and bits of land. So what happened was when he passed away, no one knew about it apart from one of his brothers who had no business knowledge whatsoever. He, he the, Obviously the IQ hadn't passed down to him <laughs> as part of the generational thing. And he squandered the money and completely decimated the business. No word of a lie. And now the land that the, um, the farms were um, based on are worth like, I don't know, probably like tens, if not hundreds of, of million. If Had it still been in our family lineage and that would have been something that would have been passed on and we could have harnessed it would have been continued so that's why you when you made um when you're talking about that having those purposeful retreats and actively discussing them and talking to the younger generation about it and blending the family into the business it's essential and it's something that we need to look at further instead of holding on and waiting for someone to pass away for us to take on something that's going to be disputed and end up being i don't know completely useless at the time yeah Wow. And there's so many stories like that, mm-hmm. especially in in families, you know, people of the diaspora, like so many stories yeah. like that. Yeah. And, you know, global <laughs> economies have been built through literally the blood, sweat and tears mm. of our ancestors. Mm. And 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 we're we have so much work to do to reclaim it and to reestablish it. So I mean, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to to talk about it and to mention yeah. it. Like it, I re- I get really really emotional. Yeah, like, like it. It, yeah. <laughs> um, But yeah, that's that's interesting. But you know, the privilege of it is we have the opportunity to change the narrative. Yeah. Um, and that's really like the call to action. That's the that's the challenge um, that I I hope that our generation rises up to, so that 400 years from now, there's an entirely different story that's being told about the diaspora. Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm definitely a big um, um, admirer of that, and definitely I'm a true believer of it. And that's why I do a lot of what I do, and that's why I speak to a lot of people I speak to. Because not only am I learning along the way from people like yourself and all the other various guests I've had on, but I'm able to share that learning experience with my audience. Who then, it, the way I see it is like whenever I'm, I'm making a podcast, I was having this conversation. I was like, even if someone picks out one line. From mm-hmm. any from because my podcast can go from anything from thirty minutes to three hours. <laughs> so mm. I'm like even if someone can pick up one line that then infuses or sparks a plug in them to take action, that to me is essential. Because even having this conversation with you now, I feel I feel more motivated than I did when I woke up. I'm like, oh wow. We, we do actually have a lot of work to do. We have a lot to consider. And, and every time I have those conversations, it re- reaffirms that and re-sparks the engine. And that's why it's, it's important for people like yourself to continuously spread the word that you're doing. Because I checked out your socials and you're constantly putting out like extremely valuable information. And uh, I think your website as well and everything else has like great content in it that, that can spark change and help people like move on to the next step. Can, can you tell my audience a bit about some of the work that you're doing currently? Like, so some of the um, yeah. stuff that's on your socials and um, and your website and so forth. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for that. So I have, um, where I am now is really, really focusing on building Black dynasties. Mm. But of course, you know, that's three generations from now. So what I want to make sure to as, as it relates to going back to our earlier conversation about the microwave society, right? It's really empowering um, Black entrepreneurs to take the first step. Um, a lot of times we um, have this 
this negative self-talk and it's like all clouded in doubt and fear and insecurity. Um, so I really coach through this process of becoming fearless. And that's like the title of, of the process. So it's proprietary process that really contextualizes the lived experience of Black and African-American entrepreneurs who have come from families that might not be talking about entrepreneurship. You know, you're probably the first entrepreneur in your family and they probably look at you crazy, right? You might feel isolated. You don't have the community that some of our counterparts in other races have. So I really focus on becoming fearless for this, this ultimate goal of building dynastic wealth. And becoming fearless starts with that foundation, right? That, that kind of identity claiming, like we have to claim our identities. A lot of times we just, and then this was my own story, right? I, by the time I got to college, I was who people told me I was, yeah. right? Yeah, that's an issue. They told me these things about myself. Mm. And I was, you know, I was in into my master's program before I was like, wait a wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not the title that you be, you bestowed upon me. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So the the sooner I can help. Um, people like claim their identity, like who are you at your core? Like what are the parts of your soul that you bring with you that, you know, you can't code switch, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's a real part of the this entrepreneurial process. So really starting with the identity claiming and then getting into the, the brand storytelling and how do you tell the story of your business? How do you help people know that these are the problems you solve? And then we get into, okay, the blue ocean strategy. Mm. What are you up against and where's your gap in the marketplace? Where's the niche that you need to fill? But I think it's at this point of retraining, which is really where like the light bulb goes off. Mm. And this is where we start talking about strategic pricing and, you know, what is your personal income goal and how do we build that into how you price your products and services? Um, So it's, it's those processes. So once we get to reestablishing like strategic pricing and making sure that you you aren't going to burn out from, (laughs) from trying to build this business, Um, I, I strongly advocate like what you're doing through your podcast. I consider that leveraging other people's expertise, Mm, right? Because as much of a bookworm as you are, like, it doesn't make sense for you to go back and read the books that I've read and the research articles that I've been Mm. reading over three years when we could have conversations like that. And share all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so being able to leverage you know, your expertise and your knowledge and, and really learn from you and draw off your passion is going to propel entrepreneurs into this place where I can do this faster. I can get here quicker and I can be more efficient in, in the process. Mm. Um, and so the next step is building like those efficient systems and, you know, documenting how your business works because yeah. You should not be the only person doing everything. Yeah, that, that's 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 the hard part. <laughs> yeah, that's that's. I think that's some part that people struggle to let go because everyone sees their business as a baby, but a business should be a structure that has different arms in it. So it's like I, at the moment, I do everything myself, but I'm trying to find ways of like spreading out the load because yeah. it's near enough impossible. Yeah, everything on your own, and it's it's not feasible either for your mental or your physical state. Yeah, <laughs> um, would you say there's there's a formula or mindset to to success that that people should focus on developing? Like, what what are the paths that people should focus on developing? Yeah, I think I think that's a great question. Um, I really, really so uh, the seven habits of highly effective people. Oh, yeah, highly effective people. Uh-huh. Yeah, really yeah, while back, yeah. So one of those habits is success leaves clues. Mm -hmm. And that says that we don't have to figure it out from scratch by ourselves. But you do need to be in the right rooms, right? You need to be in the room where it happens. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you need to be 
in the right rooms and you need to have connections with the right people. And that's how we connected, right? Because I was in a room on Clubhouse and I don't know if you were on stage or whatever, but I know I like clicked your bio and checked out the podcast. And I was like, this is so dope. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, thank you. And so now it's like I, you have created for me, literally an international audience Mm. for me to talk about dynastic wealth building. Mm. Now, if that's not like the pathway to success, you know, (laughs) so really success leaves clues, meaning find the people who have been where you are and are on their way to where you want to be and add value to them. I think, a lot of people, especially the younger generation, they, at least some of my students, they're like, oh, Miss White, will you be my mentor? And I'm like, what do you bring to the table? Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, that, that's true. <laughs> like any other relationship, it's, yeah. it's give and take. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember when me and my me and my friend first found our mentor, people were like, oh, how do you find him? Like, well, we're in his house every weekend co-calling property owners. It's like we're we're offering, we're doing something in exchange for it. We're actually exactly. putting in the work. We did, you don't just knock up so knock at someone's door and be like, Oh yeah, can you show me how you made your money? It's like they've 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 got their lives to live. So what are you really offering them? We're we're really there making calls and hi, is your property available for sale? Or like, I mean, because mm-hmm. you're the property guy. So you you're giving something back. And obviously, I was giving my interpersonal skills, my ability to speak to various people. Um, and demographics over the phone and be able to engage them and keep them on there long enough to get a yes or no or have the phone cut off for me but I'm, I'm, I'm able to do that that's one of my skills that I was leveraging so definitely people always have to consider what, what they have to bring to the table don't just always assume that because people always under the assumption that, that oh they don't they don't want to mess with me they don't want to holler at me but at the same time people are busy people got stuff going on and you have to mm-hmm. bring something to them in order for mm-hmm. them to get their attention in the first mm-hmm. place so wh- one of the interesting things i've come across when when speaking to many business personnel and successful people is um they, they're very conscientious so mm-hmm. they, they're people that they, they start something and they want to do it very well and they want to see it through like yeah. that's that's one of the that's one of the things that i've really thoroughly noticed about them they're like yeah. whenever you listen to, whenever i listen to their stories whether it be on the podcast or off the podcast when we're speaking other days um, after once we develop a, a friendship or relationship or whatever mm-hmm. is that they're very 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 conscientious they know what they're doing and they'll see every job through like they nothing ever gets left lagging or nothing is ever half-hearted if they believe in something mm-hmm. and they started it they'll make sure that they finish it and mm-hmm. that's one of the key things i always tell people i'm like look if you start something and you believe in it finish it don't just give up next week thinking oh i, I didn't make a million this week you know right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you're getting you're getting blindsided by all these ads that you're seeing on youtube and on instagram about a 17 year old kid made a million by 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 oh, applying to the, yeah or clicking on this button yeah you potentially can make a million from this ad but it requires a lot more work than the 30 second ad that you just viewed because <laughs> that 30 second ad we told you you clicked on two buttons and made a million no it just doesn't work that way all the time and there's, there are rare occasions where it happens because I know of someone who, mm-hmm. just by luck, they joined something and one thing led to another and all of a sudden, boom. But I only know one person <laughs> that that's happened to. Whilst these ads will tell you it happens to every single person that, mm-hmm. that clicks on these. So, so the work is required and that's mm-hmm. very, very important. But um, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and um, we're definitely going to catch up again. We're definitely yeah. going to catch up again and, and continue our conversation in regards to like the dynasty. So what, what I always like to tell my, my, my guests is that the first episode is just me getting to know them. But sometimes it leads into really, really valuable conversations like the ones I think we've had here today. And then obviously next, next time we, we engage, we'll be like tackling specific topics yeah. and specific ideas that people come back to me on because I get a lot of emails I realize that my, my guests tend to be of the older range so they will thoroughly send me real deep emails <laughs> <laughs> asking various questions I'm like look I'll get the guest on again and then we're gotcha. gonna delve into it a bit deeper I'm gonna do my side of the research because I don't just like speaking just for the sake of speaking yeah. I like speaking from a place of like even if I'm gonna be able to 
understand the questions that I'm going to ask my guest, or at least delve a bit deeper, make a, a, a bit more like an informed um, argument um, in relation mm-hmm. to the various topics. That's what I like to do because I think there's a lot of people just speaking nowadays because the platforms are there, they, they're easily accessible, and you you can just speak whatever it is that you want to. You can just say whatever the hell you want to say, and it is what it is. But I think there's there's too many distractions, and um, yeah. I'm trying to veer away from that as much as people are trying to push me into distractions because I, I get a lot of calls people are like, oh you know what I like, I like your your communication I like this and that do you want to do this and it's very like clickbaity stuff and I'm like I'm, I'm going to stick to my mm-hmm. my morals I'm going to stick to my mission and my aim of why I'm doing this because I know at the end of the day that's that's what's going to pay off so I don't want to veer off into another end but what else you got planned for the rest of your day um, well, for the rest of the day, I actually am doing um, some business coaching sessions. So okay. I um, have been going live on Instagram uh, recently, 7 p.m. Eastern. Okay. But even though I've been in the classroom for 11 years, yeah. I was struggling to really be visible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just like from workplace burnout and like workplace trauma. Right. Yeah. So. <laughs> I have a coach that was like, there's no way you're going to help build black dynasties if no one knows you exist. Yeah. So <laughs> um, that's uh, something that I've been doing is just like hopping. You can hop on my calendar and I'll coach you through whatever challenges that oh, nice. you're facing in your business. So I have a couple of those. today. Yeah. I think visibility is very important, especially from people of the community. Like, I mean, if you if you got the knowledge to share, we have to start making ourselves more visible. People are like the area saturated. I don't think it's saturated enough with with good ideas and, and, and good conversations. So mm-hmm. people always under the fear that, oh, my gosh, there's too much. Out. No, there's not. Mm-hmm. Like it needs to be more. The, the, mm-hmm. the rightful things need to be said more and need to be more yeah. amplified and more people need to jump on and share their knowledge. Because if you're doing it in a classroom, yes, fair enough. You might be impacting the 10, 20, 30. Exactly. It's a small <laughs> circle, but online hundreds, thousands and that's the that's the great um purpose of social media medium as much as it does harm and damage it also does fantastic stuff based on how you um decide to use it and how you decide to implement yourself within the system so it's fantastic man get yourself out there do more of this and i'm happy to connect with you today and we're definitely going to connect again i can't stop